Well, welcome this morning. Um, so glad to have you guys here this morning to, to join us in worship and to join us in, in fellowship and to join us in, in, in just studying the Word of God. If you've got your Bibles, and I hope you do, go ahead and open them up or turn them on or grab a blue one in front of you there, whatever you need to do. We're going to continue walking through 1 John. Last week, Try taught through the end of verse 2, or chapter 2, sorry. But we're actually going to pick up at the end of chapter 2 again today. And, and our worship team already read through this, but we're going to read through it again because you can't read through Scripture too much. All right, so we're going to pick up in 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. We're going to cover three sections of Scripture today, and that's the first section we're going to cover. We're children of God. Several years ago, I don't remember who it was that told me, whether it was Lisa or Vicky or Phil or maybe Sharon, somebody told me that... When Phil was raising his kids and he would drop them off at a party or, or at a whatever school function or whatever, he would say to his kids, don't forget whose kid you are, right? And I really liked that. So I kind of adopted that and started to say that to my own kids when I drop them off at school or a dance or whatever, say, hey, don't forget whose kid you are. And, and it meant something to me, but then I thought, you know, I should ask Phil what it meant to him. So, so I asked Phil, I said, why did you say that to your kids? And he said, well, it's twofold. There's, there's kind of Two reasons for that. Number one, I want them to remember that they're my kid, right? And I don't want them um, dishonoring me or, or, or making a fool out of me or embarrassing me, right? And, and there's an element of that. But he said, more importantly, I wanted to remind them that they're God's child, right? And that as I leave them alone, I want them making decisions and acting in a way that represents that they are a child of God. And I think that's such a neat thing. And I, and I want that for my own children that when I leave them somewhere without my guidance, without my instruction, without my telling them what decisions to make, that as they make their own decisions and they behave on their own, that they do that in light of remembering that they are a child of God. And that comes with a responsibility, there's an obligation, and it comes with an expectation. And I think that's what John is getting at as he walks us through this letter. The first part of this book so far, this letter that John has written, he has talked about the holiness of God. He has talked about the, the work of Jesus in our lives. And he has talked about how we ought to walk in light, not in darkness. He's talked about how we ought to love our brothers, not love the world. He's talked about how we ought to be on guard for uh, the Antichrist, the, the false teachers who would lead us astray from this message. And I think in this section that we get to, he's kind of given us the why. To all that. Why do we behave? Why, do we, why are we on guard for that? Why do we have to know these things? 
And so now let's dig in. And he says in verse 20, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. All right, so theologically, here in this, in this body, we, we ascribe to the idea that Jesus came once as a man, and he died on the cross for our sins, and he went to heaven, and at the right time, at the appointed time, he will return. He will return in his glorified body in a physical sense, and he will come back for his people. So that's what John's talking about here. When we're looking ahead to when he will come back. And we want to be in such a position that we have confidence and we won't shrink from him in shame at his coming. I think, I, I have this picture in my head of like a 1980s movie where like the parents go away for the weekend and the teenage kid is at home and he throws a party, right? Because parents are away, so you're going to throw the party. And, and that's kind of what I have in my mind. And, and of course, inevitably what happens, the parents come home early, right? The parents come home and they're not expected. And, and there's, you know, an empty empty case of bush light on the table and, and some red Solo cups all over the floor, and, and it's not going to go well for the kid, right? It, he, that, that child made decisions not consistent with what the parents would have expected of him, right? And, and I, I have to explain that story in detail because I know none of you really understand or can relate to that. None of you have made those kind of decisions. So, so I, I want you to be aware. Some people actually do that sort of thing. I've heard of it. What, what John is telling us is don't be that kid, right? Don't live your life in such a way that there's red solo cups all over your floor. Live, yourself, live your life in such a way that when Jesus comes back, no matter when that is, whether it's early or when you expect or later than you expect, you're ready. Jesus teaches us. He says, keep lamp in your oil, right? Or keep oil in your lamp, rather. Be ready. Be ready. He's coming at any time. Be ready. That doesn't mean be fearful of that and just hide in the corner waiting for it. That means live your life in such a, a proactive, loving way that you are ready, that you will not feel like you need to shrink back, that you're excited about it, that we should be looking forward to that because we've got nothing to hide and nothing to be ashamed of. He goes on to say, if you know that he is righteous, meaning Christ, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So here's where we get into this, what it means to be born of God. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. In, in John chapter 3, Jesus is talking to uh, the, the, the rabbi Nicodemus, and he's explaining to Nicodemus this idea of being born again, that, that you were born once of flesh, but you have to be born again uh, of the Spirit. And that second birth is what ties you into the spiritual life of Christ. Nicodemus says, how can one be born twice? And Jesus tries to explain this to him, and it doesn't make a ton of sense it certainly doesn't make a ton of sense to someone who's hearing that for the very first time and has no context of that. The idea of being born again is, is, is just a typical phrase that we use in the Christian church. But we've got to really understand that that has significant implication, that has a, a big impact in our lives, to be born again, to be twice-born people, right? And John is explaining that to us here. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. 
there's really two significant elements to, I, I think, see when we talk about being God's children. Paul teaches us that we receive, and we sung a song about this also, we receive not a spirit of, of, of slavery, but we've received a spirit of adoption, right? God has chosen us. God has adopted us. And as we're born into that relationship with him, we receive that spirit. We become co-heirs with Christ in that sonship. Now, the first element, I think, to recognize about that is we can see that we are loved by God and we are wanted by God. He chooses us to be his children. And that's exciting and that's a beautiful thing to take hold of. And in fact, we can relate to that because we see that in our daily lives. This has been a heavy week. This has been a hard week for our community. And, and we've, we've got children in our community now that are going to grow up without their fathers. And what a horrible thing. What a hard thing that is. That's not how God intended it. That's the brokenness of this fallen world. And children are oftentimes in that situation. I know there are a number of families in this congregation, in this room right now, who have chosen to adopt into their family, who have chosen to say, this child needs a parent, and I'm going to be that parent to them. And, and it's been my honor to even help some of you families in this, in this congregation to, to go through that process. And just real quick, I, I just want to commend you. If, if you are a family that has said, I want to adopt this child, and I want to make this child feel like they have a home, they have parents, and they're loved, good for you. The world needs more of that. So there's an element to this when we hear that God loves us enough to want us to be his children that we find great comfort and joy in that, and we ought to. But that's, an incom that's, that's incomplete. That's not the whole thing. That's not the whole beauty of being adopted by God. Because it's not just that we're welcomed into family. It's that we receive the Spirit of God. If you know that He is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him. You see, and this would have been clearer to the ancient world than it is to us, but it's no doubt clear to us if we, if we think about this. As the Father is, the, the child shall be, right? So in ancient times, you became whatever your father was. If you're a son, you became what your father was. If, if he's a farmer, you become a farmer. If he's a carpenter, you become a carpenter. It's like Jesus became a carpenter because his father Joseph was a carpenter, right? Uh, my name, we, we see that still. Like, my name is Keller. My last name is Keller. Keller is a German word related to the word cellar, like, like, like a basement, right? And specifically what that refers to is there was a, an occupation of people who, who did like food preparation and food maintenance within the cellar area of a home, and so their name became what their occupation was. That's why we have bakers, right? That's why we have people with last name Baker, or Smith, or Farmer, or Podiatrist. I'm just kidding. No one's last name is Podiatrist. So in the ancient time, it would have been clearly understood that whatever, whatever the father was, when you, the son would also be, right? And here we see the father is righteous, and John is saying, therefore, whoever is born of him shall adopt that same character. Now, it's not an automatic thing to adopt.
See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. We are children of God upon making that decision to be born again. We become his children. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. You see, and that relates to that same idea. The reason, that, the, reason the world looks at you sometimes and says, I do not understand you. I do not get why you live the way you live. It doesn't make any sense to me why you would make those choices to live that kind of life. And it's because they don't know the character and nature of our Father. If they knew the character and nature of our Father, they would understand the choices a believer makes in their lives, the different path a believer has. If they have no context of how the Father lives, of the character and nature of the Father, then they have no understanding of, of why a Christian lives the way a Christian ought to live. So it's important for us to understand that being a child of God is, is not just that we're loved enough to be adopted in his family, but that we are adopted as God's child. Now, something that's really important as we think about that is God is loving, but God is so much more than just a loving father. He is God, after all. The prophet Isaiah in, in uh, chapter 40, verse 12 writes, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice? And taught him knowledge? And showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket, and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing in emptiness. That's the magnitude of our God. And that's incomparable to anything else, anyone else, any other made-up God or any earthly father. He is so much greater than anything we can comprehend. And yet, that's the spirit we get to adopt. That's the God that becomes our father. I'm probably not the only one who grew up telling somebody else, my dad can kick your dad's butt, right? right? I'm probably not the only kid. But man, my heavenly father can kick your God's butt right? I mean, that's, that's such a neat thing to see who God is, that this God who has this ultimate power and authority, yet is loving and tender and caring and just and perfect. He chooses to not only adopt us, but he chooses to give us that spirit that we might share in that with him. And with that comes a great responsibility. You see, we might not understand that we adopt our father's occupation, but we certainly understand that we adopt traits from our earthly fathers, right? As the father is, the son will be. Now, that's not always true, right? We recognize sometimes as good or sometimes as bad. That's not true. But, but if we think about it, it, is, it, it's accurate that that's kind of the default, right? Because if a father is wonderful or if a father is awful and the son is the opposite, we usually say, Wow, I mean, I didn't see that coming, right? 
I mean, I, I expected the son to be this way based on what I knew of the father, but, but it's not true. But on the other hand, if the son is exactly like the father, what do we say? Well, apple doesn't fall far from the tree, right? There's still this idea that as the father is, the son shall be, or as the parent is, the child shall be. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. We are children of God now, but we are not made complete yet. So through the, through the work of Jesus, God looks down at us and says, because you have adopted my son's purity, I anoint you as pure. You're not pure. In fact, you're sinful, and it's your sin that put my son on the cross. But because he died and he was worthy and you chose to follow him, I see you as pure. But we know we are not pure, right? We are still broken. We, we are a work in progress. And what John is saying here is that even though you are adopted, even though you are now a child of God, no one can ever take that away from you. No one will ever take that away from you. There's still a process. You're still not pure yet. But if you continue to walk in this path, God will do that work in you so that when your Savior comes back and your time comes, you will be pure as He is pure. Now, that doesn't mean we will be as Jesus. It doesn't mean we'll be the same as Him. He is deity. He is holy and He is set apart. But what, John, uh, what Paul teaches us in Philippians 3 is that Jesus is transforming us to be like him in his glory. And that's something wonderful to look forward to. But that is a process. And that's what we're getting into here. That is a process. That process is, in fact, the purpose of your life on earth. That's what you're doing here. That's why you're alive. That's why you're on earth. That's why God gave you life. That's why you wake up every day and go through the stuff you go through. It's that process of God shaping you and transforming you and making him, making you like him. You see, and, and Pastor Try has shared this. There was a, the Gnostics at the time had this idea that, well, once you subscribe to being a follower of God, Pretty much all you had to do is just kind of wait till death, because at death you became pure, because your, your life, your physical life, what you did didn't really matter. You can indulge yourself. Where it didn't matter what you did in this life. What matters is that upon death, you, you adopt that purification of Christ. And John says, no, no. It, what you do here does matter. How you live here matters. That's why we, he instructs us to walk in the light. Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Jesus is pure. We are not purified simply by following him, but we're on that path. It's guaranteed for us now, but not yet kind of idea that we've talked about before. All right, next section, verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared, Jesus, in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. 
No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. This is a hard chunk of Scripture. As we read this, as I read this, here's how my mind kind of works. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Yeah, that makes sense to me, right? If you're, you're sinning, that's a violation of, of the, the rules, right? The, the, the standard that God has set for you. That makes sense. Sin is lawlessness, yes. You know, verse 5, that he appeared, that Jesus appeared in order to take away sins. Yeah, I thank God for that, right? We have no hope without that. I'm on board with that. And in him, in Jesus, there is no sin. Yes, it's, it's, it's his perfection. It's his purity that makes him worthy to free me from my sins. And then in 6, it goes on to say, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. Man, I hate that part. That part, that part weighs on me. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. I am, I, I am born again. I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. He is my Savior. I, I want to pattern my life in such a way that I abide in him. And John says, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. But you know what? I keep on sinning. I keep on sinning. And I'm not alone. You keep on sinning too. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteous is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. When we just read that, when we just read those words, I feel like, man, I'm out. I'm not worthy. I don't qualify. I keep on sinning. There's things that I know are wrong that I do. There's things you know are wrong that you do. Let's go back to what Pastor Tri taught. He, he's, he said this a couple times throughout this. In his BC days, right, he would say, and he has told us, on Friday night, my aim was sin. I was pursuing the sin, knowingly going after that behavior that I know is sin. I'm going after that. That was my practice. And after coming to know Christ, he realized, I can't chase that anymore. I've got to pursue holiness. That doesn't mean we don't stumble. So how do we, how do we read that into this right here? Well, first of all, we cannot, just basic, basic tenet of reading Scripture You've, you've got to look at context. And so we've got to see that earlier in this very letter, John is writing that if we claim to be without sin, we're a liar, right? And in fact, if we claim that we even make God a liar, because God acknowledges that we are sinners. 
So John already has said that we are sinners. We have it in our lives. We are stained by that. So he's not contradicting himself here. When he says we're, we're, we don't keep on sinning, what we're getting at is this idea that there ought to be something different in you. You ought not chase that anymore. Paul teaches this same thing when he says, I do the thing I don't want to do, but the thing I want to do, I, I, I don't do. We, we, we see that that is true and that that happens. And, and we know by our very own experience that we don't just stop sinning. We're not just cured of sin. We don't, we don't, it, it's, still, it's still a stain in our life. So let, let's kind of look at what this, because that's not what he's saying here, though. He, what he says is you don't keep on sinning. So here's, here's how I kind of relate this language. If I pull into the parking lot, we've got a few handicapped parking spots out here. If I pull into a handicapped spot, and we've got a big event going on, and I walk in here, Try's going to come up to me and say, hey, Ben, you, you can't park there. And I would say to Try, au contraire, I just did, right? I've proven that I can park there. And he says, no, you can't park there. You, you, you don't qualify to park there. You don't have some inability to, to get in here. And, and I'll tell you this. I have complete confidence, like uh, I got a ton of confidence that absolutely anywhere in that parking lot out there, you put me, I can make it here. I can get myself here from anywhere in that parking lot. I don't mean to brag, but I can do it. From anywhere in that parking lot, I can make it here. And, and Try knows that about me, so if I pull in that parking spot, Try says to me, you can't park there. And I say, yes, I can. He's not saying that I can't park there. He's saying that I don't qualify to park there. I ought not park there. You see, and that's where I'm at in my life, is that oftentimes I park where I ought not park. I know, I know that there's a quality in me that says don't park there, but I park there anyway. And I think oftentimes that's us, is we park in our sin. We know that's not a good spot to park. We know that's not for us, but we park there anyway. And that's what John is saying we have to get rid of in our life. We can't choose to park there. That's that process. It's a hard process. And, and Paul teaches us in Romans uh, chapter 8, he says this suffering, this, this process you go through is, is worth it because of the glory we get to share in Christ. We are co-heirs with Christ if we suffer with Him, and if we go through this, this hard earthly process, we share in His glory. He says the same thing in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. He says this light momentary affliction, this, the circumstances you go through, the process you go through, the hard stuff in your life, it's not meaningless. There's a purpose behind it to shape you to enjoy that glory with God. But that, that process, that sanctification, there's, there's really two competing parts of that in our lives. There's number one, as we are born again, the Spirit of God comes into us and changes us from the inside. In fact, the psalmist says that as we pursue God, he literally says that he grants us the desires of our heart. That doesn't mean he gives us the things we want. That means he transforms inside of us the things that we desire. He gives us the things. He embeds in us the things that we pursue after as we pursue Him. He changes us from the inside. 
That's important because you can't do it on your own. You can't just say, I don't want that sin in my life anymore, so I'm not going to do it. You guys have all tried that, and you guys have all failed at that. I know that because I'm the same way. But it's through the transforming power of Jesus in our lives that our cup is not whitewashed from the outside, but cleansed from the inside. And praise God for that. We can't do it on our own. But, but we still have a role to, we still have choices to make in our lives. As Jesus is transforming us, we can't just choose to park where we ought not park because that puts us in, in peril. And John says, quit parking there. Now, there's two ways of looking at where you park or, or how you conduct yourself in this life. Because John tells us earlier that he's, he's not telling it to us because we don't know the law, but he's telling it to us because we do. And that means we understand God's standard in our life and we ought to live by it. You see... Before we're believers, we don't really know what sin is. We don't have any standard to recognize it, right? It's like if I'm driving down the highway and there's no speed limit sign, so I'm just driving as fast as I feel comfortable driving. Like I'm not trying to drive too fast. I'm not trying to violate any rules. But if there's no posted speed limit sign or if I just had my eyes closed at that point, probably not safe driving. But for whatever reason, I don't know the speed limit and I'm going 60, right? Feels right. I got no reason to think that that's wrong. And then I, and I get pulled over. I can tell the officer, I didn't know. Well, I'm still held accountable. I still violated the law. Just because I didn't know it doesn't mean I'm not held accountable for that. Now, another scenario, I'm cruising down the highway. I see the speed limit sign that says 45. But I like going 60. So I'm going to keep going 60. Completely different scenario, right? Very different scenario. Now I know the standard and I'm choosing to do something different. I'm choosing to make myself the standard giver. I'm choosing to make myself the authority to say what's the right speed to drive, and I'm adopting my own belief. That's a very different scenario. So for the Christian who has the Spirit working in your life, you know the speed limit. And if you choose to break that speed limit, you're what John's talking about here. You can't drive that fast. Well, yes, I can. Watch me, right? We do that all the time. Watch me. <clears throat> if you're that person who just doesn't know the speed limit, right, that's part of the process. You give yourself over to Christ. You spend time in his word. You grow in your relationship with him, and you begin to understand and comprehend his standard in your life. And it's not restrictive. It's not to, to limit your life. It's to give you freedom in him. And for those of you in here that know the speed limit and you're driving faster anyway, and you, you, you got to make that change. You cannot allow that in your life. Whoever makes a practice of sinning, that's what you're doing in that scenario, is of the devil. That kind of punches you in the gut, right? That punches me in the gut. Remember, Jesus said the same thing. Jesus was talking to, to Pharisees and said, your father is the devil, right? Man, that's a hard thing to hear from somebody, especially when you think of yourself as holy and godly and, and I'm righteous. And it says, no, your, your father, look, look at the way you're living. So when people see you and they see that you're violating the speed limit, and when I say that you understand, I mean you're living a sinful life, you're choosing sin, yet you're saying I'm godly and you're saying I'm righteous and you don't appear to be, you don't appear to be a son of the father. Heavenly Father, you appear to be a son of the devil. That's what John is saying to us here. 
The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus is sinless. Jesus is our co-heir. Jesus adopted that righteousness from the Father. And what John said to us, the first section of, of, of Scripture that we covered, is that we are to adopt that. We are to be like our Father. We are to demonstrate righteousness in our life, not sin. Let me, be, let me be more direct. Let me be more clear. Because I don't think anyone here is really convicted about their speeding. Right? Probably not. Some of you have become comfortable in your sin. And, and I understand it. I, I do because I've been there. Because Sometimes when we read what Paul writes, that I, I know the thing I'm supposed to do, but I don't do it. And I know the thing I should avoid, but I do that anyways. Sometimes we say, yeah, I can relate to that. But then sometimes, not only do we relate to that, but then we just find comfort in that. I believe that we've become too comfortable in our sin. Now, Paul writes, let me turn there. Paul writes in Romans, the end of, end of chapter 5. He says, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. And at the end of 6, he says, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. See, what, what Paul is saying, what he's teaching there is, is God's grace is sufficient. All of us are tarnished by our sin and God's grace is sufficient. Right? That Despite our sin, or in light of our sin, we can't out-sin God's grace. His grace is always going to be enough for us. But, but Paul's saying that doesn't mean that you should keep on sinning and, and doing that just so you, experience, so you continue to experience that, that grace. That's not the pursuit. The pursuit isn't to experience the, the forgiving grace. The pursuit is holiness. The pursuit is righteousness. But here's what some of us have done. We've, we've done our lives, we've said, you know what, I understand God's grace, and I'm grateful for God's grace, and I know that God's grace is sufficient for my sin, so I'm not really trying that hard to get rid of the sin in my life. You might not intellectually think that out, but when you look at your life, that's what's happened. You have found comfort in God's grace to stay in your sin. And I, there's, there's very few things as wonderful to experience as God's grace, but one thing that's more wonderful than experiencing God's grace is taking that grace to another level and experiencing the pursuit of God's righteousness in your life. That's a better place than just sitting at, at, at grace forgiving your sin. So I said I was going to be direct. Some of you have found comfort in God's grace 
in your own life, in your addiction, you, you, you know you shouldn't drink as much as you drink. You say you've got it under control, but you don't, but you do it anyway. You're putting things into your body you know you shouldn't. You're letting things come out of your mouth you know you shouldn't. You're in a relationship you know you shouldn't be, or you're doing things within your relationship that you know is not within God's standard. But somehow you've convinced yourself that it's a safe place to be, or it's okay. God's fine with it, or God's not fine with it, but God's grace will save me. That's the same thing as being that person. So when Paul says, should we continue to sin? He wasn't being serious. He knows that the answer is obvious. No, we shouldn't keep sinning. And you guys know that too, but you do it anyways. And I'm not accusing you. It's, it's a we thing, right? We do that anyway. You cannot be comfortable in your sin. Now, hear me out. I'm not telling you that there's not room for God's grace in your life. Because there is. This is not a, a one or the other. This is, you've got to understand that you're not going to out-sin. I don't want you just carrying the burden of your sin around like, man, I guess I'm hopeless because I, I still have this sin in my life. That's not what I'm saying. There is hope for you because God's grace is sufficient, but you can't stay there. There has to be a determination in you to deal with the sin. Not to let it be, not to be satisfied with it, but to deal with it. To pursue obedience. That's what this whole section is, is obedience. Pursue obedience, what God calls you into your life, to align yourself with Christ so that when people see you, they see the righteousness of Christ because that's what you've adopted. That's what you've been adopted into. You cannot be satisfied. You cannot be comfortable in your sin. And I know it's hard. I know addiction is real. I, I know codependency is a, is, a, is a hard thing to break, three, break free from. But here's the thing. What this is telling you is you have to take a big swing. You have to make drastic changes. If you got to throw your computer out your window, throw it out your window. If you got to trade your smartphone in for a flip phone, do it. If it, if it is going to help you avoid that sin in your life. If you need to end a relationship, end it. If you need to create new boundaries in your relationship, do it. You have to take a big hammer to this problem. You cannot just be satisfied with it in your life. You have to make a determination to deal with it or it's going to weigh you down because you know what? You can't park there. John, at the end of this section, kind of transitions to the next. Uh, he says, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Now, Scott, when he was up here a few weeks ago, he talked about loving his brother. He talked about how we ought to live a life that reflects God's love in us, and we ought to love one another. And John repeats that here. And there's significance to that, right? Because he, he, he leads earlier with the way you ought to live your life is walking in the light, loving one another. Now we're going to get to a part where he says, love one another. And sandwiched in between there is the, the don't sin part, right? The focus of our life should not be the not sinning. The focus of our life should be the living a life of love, to treat others with the respect and love that God has given to us. And if we're doing that, then the, the steering clear of the sin part becomes easier. It becomes more natural. We're not walking in that. 
If you, if you have this behavior you're trying to avoid and your focus is on that behavior, I don't want to do that, I don't want to do that, I don't want to do that. If you keep focusing on it, you're going to do that, right? You're going to do that. So, verse 11. And I know I'm fooling some of you that thought I was quitting at 10, suckers. Here we go, let's keep going. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, right? John, if you read the, the, the gospel of John, it's the same thing. He's teaching the, this, he, he's, he's the kind of the, the disciple of love, right? He talks about love a lot. And so that's, that's been his thing that he has shared from the very beginning. That we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who is of evil one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. All right. What did Cain do wrong? Uh, honestly, as I read the passage of Cain brought his sacrifice, Abel brought his sacrifice, I don't see a problem with Cain's. Because God never gave a, pres a prescription before that that a sheep sacrifice was better than, uh, you know, something that came from the ground. I've heard that, and I don't think it's true, because we, we see, we, got, we even see God refer to what we ought to give as our first fruits, right? It wasn't the fact that the thing that he gave wasn't good enough. The problem was his heart. So his deed wasn't the problem. It was how and why he, he performed what he performed. So let me put it like this. In, 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 let me preface this by saying what John is teaching us here is that the way we love ought to be like Christ loved. How did Christ love? Sacrificially, through servanthood. He did not love in such a way that he would receive a benefit from it. He loved in such a way that we would receive the benefit of it. The object of his love is whom he wanted to receive the benefit. Cain's was opposite. You see, Cain was pursuing his own edification. That's why afterwards he murdered his brother. It's because he didn't receive what he, he gave something. He gave something really good, in fact. He gave his best, but he did it so he would receive a reward. When he didn't receive the reward, he murdered his brother. The thing you do is not what defines whether it's in love. It's, it's the heart it comes from. I can buy my wife flowers. Is that an act of love? Can be. If I buy my wife flowers so that I receive something from her, it's an act of love. But it's an act of love for me, not her. That's a self-serving love. That's not love at all for her. That's using her. If I buy her flowers just because I want her to feel honored and loved and precious in the gift of God that she is to me, that's love. That's an act of love. So the act itself of giving the flowers doesn't define whether it's an act of love or not. It's the heart it comes from. Verse 16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children... Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. See, our love has to take action, but our love has to come from a heart modeled after Jesus, that he would lay down his life for us. And don't forget that when he laid his life down for you, you didn't love him. In fact, it was your behavior, your actions, your choices that put him on the cross. Paul tells us in another place that 
While we were still sinners, Christ died for us, right? And yet he still chose to sacrifice himself for us. God, the Father, chose to send his Son for us group of broken sinners. That's love. That's what love looks like. That is the spirit we have adopted. So as a child is to mirror after the Father, we need to pursue that in our lives. And, and so we've gone from bad things to avoid to the good things to pursue here, right? And, and it's a really important distinction. It's good for us to avoid the bad things, to not sin, to, to not park where we ought not park. Think of it like this. Earlier this week, uh, a teacher at the high school came up to me and said, hey, you know what? I just wanted, I just wanted to share with you that your son, Tanyan, man, he's an awesome kid. I, I saw him this week, and, and he was at a meeting, and he spoke up, and he just did such a remarkable job, and I was so proud of him, and he's just a neat kid, and, and he just goes out of his way to, to just treat people well, and, 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 and I, as you can imagine, that made my heart swell, right? That's my son. That's my son that she's talking about. Now, if she came up to me and said, hey, I just wanted to tell you that your son's really not that bad. I don't see him sinning all the time. I'm like, okay, thanks, right? <laughs> I mean, I'm glad, but that's not quite as, as fulfilling to me as hearing of the positive impact he's having. That makes our father swell with joy to see the positive impact you can have in the lives around you. Our father wants us to obey by minding the speed limit. But more than that, our father wants us to take that to another level and live like he has called us to live. With your life, what are you doing? How are you using your minutes, your days, your hours, your time, your efforts, your energy, your money, your resources, whatever you have, how are you using it to love one another? How are you using it to positively impact the people around you? Are you using it for your own benefit so that you're satisfied or so others see that in you? Or are you using it to positively impact other people for no other benefit than their own? That's what we're called to. Now, I, I, don't want, I don't want you to hear me just preaching to you to be a martyr, right? Because you, you need to watch out for you. You need to care for yourself. You need a vacation day, right? You need to, you need to go out to eat sometimes. You, you need to, to, to kind of bless yourself in those kind of ways as God has provided that opportunity for you. But if that's the pattern of your life that you're living is self-serving, then you're missing the point. In fact, here's what I would tell you. And here's what John is telling us. Remember last week, Tri was saying that, that there is, as there is these uh, false teachers within the church, that John would say, in fact, I'll just read it. Here's what it says. John's talking about these, these people who are within the church, who are part of their fellowship. And he'd say, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be complained that they all are not of us. They professed Christ, but they didn't abide in Christ. You see, they, they said they were believers. That's not, how, that's not what their lives looked like. And the reality is a lot of us in this room profess Christ. We say, yeah, I'm, I'm born again. I'm a believer. I'm a Christian. 
But look at the pattern of your life. If the pattern of your life is that you're choosing to stay parked in your sin and you're not making a pattern of giving yourself and all that you have and all that God has given you to positively impact others around you, you got a question. Takes, I mean, you got a question whether or not you're twice born. Because maybe it's not a reality in you. Maybe you've just fooled yourself into saying that. Maybe it's not a truth for you. And that's not to say you're hopeless, right? I don't want you to walk around and say, well, man, I guess I'm done. No, pursue it. There ought to be a pursuit of holiness and righteousness. There ought to be a pursuit of adopting God's character in your life. And there's a million ways to do that. It can be through service here, right? It can be through service within this body. For those of you who've been here, and and I, there's so many of you out here, and I have been so blessed these years to serve alongside so many of you. And it makes my heart sing to see you guys serving, to see you giving of your time and your, your efforts and your energy. And some of you do it for ulterior motives. I know that. I believe that. Some of you do it for your own satisfaction so other people will look to you. And, and, and God is using that. God is working you through that. But I, and I know some of you, because I know you well, because I, I know your hearts, that you do it because you just want to see God glorified. And what a beautiful thing. And some of you j- just don't know where to fit in yet. You, you may be new, or you may be new to the faith, or new to this body, and you haven't made those connections to know where to serve yet. But, but it's there for you. There's, there's something for you. And you know what? Quite frankly, I, some of you show up, and, and, and you just, you're okay with other people doing everything. You just show up on Sundays, and you're okay with everyone else doing all the work. And that's not a good place to be. And I don't know what the rest of your life looks like, but if that's what, if that's what your relationship within this body looks like, there's a good chance that's what it looks like in your other relationships. You're kind of a consumer. You're seeing what other people can do in your life. Don't park there. That is not a good place to park. There's no real blessing in that. So I don't know what that looks like in your life, whether it's just the way you treat people at work, you know, the way you incorporate yourself here. Come in early, make a pot of coffee. Give people a ride to the VOA. Sing. Work the soundboard. You know, I mean, start a small group. Yeah, yeah. Start a small group. Get involved. Get plugged into people's lives. Because here's the thing. You can't love people if you don't know them. Like, like, I can love my wife in a way that seems to make sense to me. But until I know her, know what makes her tick, my love will be empty. Until I love her in a way that she receives it, it, it'll be empty. So in order to love one another, you have to know one another. You have to know the needs of the people around you in order to know how to meet those needs because that's how you love them. So if you're in a shell and you don't know, if you haven't taken the time, the effort, the energy to study the people around you. And some of us in our marriages haven't even done that. We haven't become students of our children or students of our spouse, and therefore we think we're loving them, but we're not. We're, we're, we're missing. In the same way with this body. You got to know where the needs are. Same way with your work relationships. You got to know people to know their needs so you can meet them. So maybe it's just the way you love your wife when you come home at the end of the day. Maybe that's, that's where God wants to work at you in the way you love one another. 
I don't know, maybe it's talking to your kids. I tell you, my, um, I don't think he's in here, my son Nolan. Nolan is like a mini-me. He, 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 we're interested in a lot of the same things. We do a lot of things together. Um, but he also loves video games. And I do not love video games. All right. Um, and so he'll, he'll tell, he'll start talking to me about his video game. Like, dad, watch this. You're going to love this. I'm like, actually, I hate this. Right. But I, I don't say that. And sometimes I'm, I've got this like glossed over look and it's all I can do to just hang in there and listen. And what I really want to say is, dude, just stop talking. Cause I've totally emptied out my tank trying to listen to this story about this video game. Right. But here's the reality. That, that's that's kind of how my heart feels, but I stay engaged as best I can because if it's important to him, it's important to me. And that's how I can love him, by knowing what's important to him and, and chasing after that thing. And I don't do a very good job of that sometimes, especially when it comes to video games, but that, that's got to be the pursuit of our life is to, to just hang on to what other people need and chase after that. This, there's a lot of room for that in our community right now. There's a lot of brokenness in our community right now. But here's the reality. The brokenness in our community is probably, to some degree or another, a reflection of the brokenness in your life. There's hurt. There's failure. There's a lack of proper fatherhood in your life. And I don't mean that in in the sense that your dad, you got dad issues or whatever. What I mean by that is you don't grasp what it means fully to be a child of God and to hang on and to cling to your heavenly Father and to pursue His character in your life and to chase after that with all you have. He's just dying to give that to you. He's the, pro- he's the, the son in the story of the prodigal son. He's the father in the story of the prodigal son who's just watching for you every day to show up, that he can run to you and dump his fatherly gifts on you. But like that son, sometimes we just park where we ought not park. So we cannot forget whose kid we are. We cannot forget that in this life, we've got to be making choices, making decisions, making a pattern of our life that reflects that we are God's child. As the father is, the son shall be. As the father is, the child shall be. Let's make that true in our lives. Don't forget whose kid you are. Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you so much for loving us. We thank you for adopting us. We thank you for gifting us with your love and for giving us hope and for giving us a standard that doesn't hold us down or restrict us but frees us to be who you created us to be. Forgive us, Lord, for when we chase after the things that feel right. What a load of garbage that is, God. The things that make sense to us, we're so foolish. Why would we rely on that? Thank you for your word, Lord. Thank you for your ways and for loving us enough to give us your commands, for giving us hope, and for giving us opportunities to love one another and to positively impact the people around us, that you might be glorified, God, and that we might enjoy that glory with you. In your holy name we pray, Lord. Amen.